Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. My name is Harry, Harry Kemsley. I'm the president of government and national security for Jane's. A huge privilege to be at the helm of what is one of the greatest organizations of its type in the world. And we're here today to talk about open source intelligence, a topic extremely close to my heart, my professional heart with my role at Jane's, and how it can be incorporated, better incorporated into the defense intelligence environment. To help me in that discussion, I have two extremely expert colleagues with me who I will introduce in just a moment. Our intention is to consider the challenges and indeed the opportunities of incorporating open source or publicly available information and intelligence into the defense intelligence environment. First of all, allow me to introduce Sean Corbett, who is a long-term colleague and friend of mine. He's the founder and CEO of Insight Global, a consultancy specializing in strategic thinking, open source intelligence, and business optimization. And that's since he finished working briefly for a satellite and defense analytics company. For those of you that know Sean, will know him to have retired from the Royal Air Force in 2018 as a Air Marshal after a 30-year career as a professional intelligence officer through which I knew him and encountered him many times. He is a fearsome man to cross when it comes to matters of important mission focus. His last appointment, which I think is worth worthy of note, in the military was uh, two years in Washington as the first non-US deputy director of a major US intelligence agency. And Sean, a real pleasure to have you with me. Thank you for joining. Great to be here, Harry. Now let me introduce Terry Bush, a legend in his own time, a man who I have seen and followed many times, and I am genuinely privileged to introduce to you as an entrepreneurial and innovative former government executive with over 25 years of experience developing new government capabilities, programs, and enterprise programs. He is known and well-regarded as the builder of leading edge artificial intelligence technologies, big data and data science analytical programs. And at the moment, Terry is developing new platforms for government and industry, focusing on leveraging open source data and software. So as you, I hope, can see as clearly as I can, two true experts to help us on this conversation. A real pleasure to have you both here. Thank you, Terry, for joining. Thank you for having me. So I think what we should do first, gents, is to frame the discussion by being clear about what we mean by open source, publicly available information that becomes intelligence, so-called OSINT. I say that and I ask you to help me define it because it will provide a platform for conversation as we go forward in the next 20, 25 minutes. And for me, I think it's sometimes the source of misunderstanding of the value of open source intelligence. And I use that word intelligence very carefully and very deliberately. Sorry, if you don't mind, I'm going to come to you first, Sean, I'll follow to you in terms of how do you define, what do you think of when you hear the phrase open source intelligence? Sure, absolutely. Thanks. Um, you know, in an old paradigm, we would call something, the difference between information and intelligence is that information is assessed, right? It has been assessed to have intelligence value and a judgment has been made about the data. In today's world with open source information, I redefine that to say that we've contextualized that information. We've extracted it for its veracity, its confidence and being right. Uh, and we've gotten to a point that we can use data as intelligence, right? Meaning that it's not just some sort of data that we've just pulled and, and inserted in the process, 
but we've put it into some sort of validation chain to make sure that the data can be used in a highly interoperable and in a way that we trust the information. Thank you, Terry. I'll come back to a couple of points you made there about contextualization perhaps later, but Sean, can I just throw it across to you in terms of how do you think about what people call as open source intelligence? Yeah, thanks, Harry. Um, obviously, I agree with Terry in terms of it has to be that value added. But for me, and it's a really important start point, actually, that I think there's a perception out there that open source intelligence is, you know, what you scrape off the internet um, and false persona and all the sort of clever, you know, quite dark stuff that happens. But for me, open source intelligence is not that, actually. I, I guess I would I would say it's, it's the source of, of value added that any member of the population of public could be able to legitimately and legally access that information, whether that's commercial or or it is um, just just open open source, and that could be anything from commercial imagery in, in all its forms, news reports, AIS data, that sort of thing, academic articles, brochures, interviews, even legal intercept, and that's one of the beauties, but also one of the uh, pressures that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment of, of open source intelligence. It is any form of, of information that can be used to support an assessment. So it's, the, it's that openly accessible and legal pit that's uh, important for me. Yeah, I agree with all that. Um, I had the privilege recently of walking along Hadrian's Wall, a very, very old structure that the Romans put in in the back end of their uh, time here. And I can tell you, it occurred to me that what we talk about as open source intelligence is kind of traditional intelligence. It was around for a lot longer than the exquisite stuff that we talk about now in the classified environment. But I'll move on for fear that I start boring you about my love of uh, ancient history. Let's move on then with that definition of the contextualized, validated information that we can pull from public sources and indeed uh, commercial sources and bring them to the utility of the analyst in the national security and defense arena. I'm going to put to one side for now a really important topic about the other parts of government that also need access to open source because we're here to talk about defense intelligence and I'm going to be a little bit precious to focus it in there but let's not overlook the fact that it's not a unique requirement for defense or national security it's actually a pan-government requirement as much as it is for many of the commercial parties that support them so the need let's move on to the need for open source why do we care so much that people aren't using open source as much as we think they could or should again Terry, i'm going to start with you on that what's the need what's what's the driver here for us to be moving that way sure absolutely um you know i think from a defense intelligence perspective, we go back in time and we look at preparation of the battle space, right? This has been a difficult process and it's a time-honored process. And every commander has always known that they're seeing some version of reality, but not the complete depiction of reality, right? And it was expensive and it hard and it took us a long time to put those plans and that understanding of the battle space together. And then about 10 years ago, there was this big data revolution that sort of happened overnight. You started using Google Maps and Wikipedia and open source information became part of your consumer life, right? Very, very quickly. You can go to almost any place in the world and, and, and there are data deserts that are important to us where this isn't happening and see every function and every building and, and every piece of infrastructure. And we had to transition from this older way of knowing, which was, took us forever, to this new way of knowing. I always use this analogy is, think how long it took us to collect and, and understand a bridge 25 or 30 years ago versus today. Every bridge in the world is in an open source database and we can confirm it. So that's a transition that we're bringing into defense intelligence today. We're still in that process. So that battle space preparation, Terry, which I recognize is one way in which we really should be using open source. 
I think the point that we might come back to again if we have time, although I'm sure we'll burn that quickly, is that technology has unlocked the door to that publicly available information. I do distinctly remember the time when, uh, in my own roles in military life, I knew the information was out there somewhere. I just couldn't get to it. I really, really knew it was out there. The known unknown or the unknown known it's out there somewhere but i just couldn't get to it maybe that's the change in the last 10 years terry the technologies unlocked that door and allowed us into the aladdin's cave of open source right it's this collection and then ease of uh, access and use all came together in the last 10 years but they came into a setting with lex you know with legacy technology and very well established business processes that are still changing and adapting to that yeah. Sean, over to you. What about the drivers here for the power of open source and why it needs to be brought forward? Again, I'd agree everything that Terry said. I mean, I, I don't think there's a particularly new requirement for OSINT. I think it's always been there. But I think the availability of it and the what you can do with it has made it more powerful now. But if you step back one sort of strategically looking about the state of the world today, I just wrote down a, just a few of the challenges that, that the, the poor old intelligence community is faced with now. You know, and it's always been uh, over overtasked and under-resourced. But, you know, you've got a Russian resurgence. You've got the rise of China as a regional and global competitor. You've got the rogue states that are becoming more rogue, you could argue. You've got pressure on supply chains caused by COVID and other elements. You've got violent extremist organizations coming up. And, uh, and then you've got increasing environmental threats. That is a huge amount for any organization and even multiple organizations to look at. But there is a requirement to do so, obviously, because that threat is so is so pervasive now. And if you think there's 1,200 petabytes plus, it's probably a lot more than that now, on the internet available, it would almost be criminal not to use that to to not just to, you know fill in the gaps actually, but I think in many ways the the sort of less urgent, the less exquisite requirements, uh, operational requirements, to actually fill that gap with with that uh, you know the, the stuff that's that's clearly available to everybody. But I do go back to you know it's got to be of, and we'll go on to talk to this no doubt. It's got to be of use and helpful for that poor analyst that sat there churning out lots and lots of products with not all the information they need, and they have to have the tools to be able to do so. Um, I just want to spend just a second, though, talking about where OSINT could or should be used, its power. And I'll give you a couple of examples from my experience uh, working at Jane's and kind of things that we have seen ourselves do, because I think it might open up a slightly different channel of this conversation. So I know that Jane's information can be used to sort of prime the pump. It's a foundational intelligence set that allows people to see things quickly, find things quickly and move on to their more detailed analysis. And that's relatively straightforward. But I also see things like indicators and warnings coming out of the open source environment. I remember with horror the scenes around the Boston Marathon. I'm a, an ex-runner. And I do remember the scenes that you saw on the TV of all the telephones that were up in the air, videoing, recording what was going on immediately after the uh, incident occurred. For me, that was a bit of a revelation that in the open source environment at that moment is where the understanding of what was happening in the, quote, battle space of the horrors after that event it wasn't in the minds, it wasn't on the systems of JWix and the other systems around, it just wasn't yet. It would be soon, but it's in the open source. And that indicators and warnings piece uh, comes through. And there's also the plausible deniability. If an organization in the open source environment, and there are quite a few of them now, can put something into public domain that allows an agency to talk about it that it otherwise might not be able to, that's also very useful. So this capability primer, 
this indicators and warnings and also this plausible deniability are just some examples of where open source, I think, has real utility in the defense environment. Are there any others or do you have any experience of any of those, Terry, that you'd like to uh, share with us? Yeah, I think there's definitely the breaking news uh, cycle of it, right? The, the ability to look into the world in practically real time and understand breaking events. And, and, and strategic surprise and defending against strategic surprise is a very hard thing for the intelligence communities of the world to do because it's generally popping up uh, in an unwarranted situation. So that's the, the first. The second is contextualization of what's going on and, and, and adding to the adding to our understanding of, of any environment, right? It's not just the window in the world, it's looking at the world over time to understand those patterns, trends, enigmas, and anomalies so that we can get ahead of some of these cycles, so that we better comprehend all the forces, right? And, and that ability to see comprehensively, I think, is new in those realms, right? It's not just INW, it's the entirety of, of, of yeah. your assessment of your stare. Very important that we that we in, incorporate OSINT into those processes as well. Yeah, Sean, any additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I would I would focus at this stage because this has got to be an incremental. You know, you've got to start increasing the trust um, in that in, in the open source intelligence. And I would look at foundational intelligence as being really the bread and butter in which OSINT right now can play its role. It's not that stuff that needs to be right now. You know, this has got to be briefed to senior decision makers on which to base. And although uh, exactly as Terry said, there's legitimate use for that because, you know, you can you can just see with your own eyes if there's a press reporting going on. But but beyond that, I think, you know, that the, the, I would call it the more boring stuff, but it's not actually. It's the really foundational stuff, order of battles, that sort of thing. Not even that, actually. If you're doing something like a non-combatant evacuation operation, you know, or disaster relief, you're going to want to know about the road networks, you're going to want to know about port facilities, about airfields, et cetera, et cetera. All that is out there and it can be easily gained. Now, by concentrating, you know, people on the open source side of doing that or even letting commercial um, providers do that for you, that leaves the analysts to do the really exquisite so what piece that they are very, very good at, but get frustrated because they don't have the opportunity to do. Yeah, so just to kind of put a punctuation mark in the conversation so far, so we've agreed that open source is a pervasive resource that we really must use. It would be criminal not to use it, given its um, depth, breadth, and potential utility. We've talked about some of the utilities that we have seen, we can see for the use of open source in the defense. I'm going to pick up on a question that's come into the Q&A box uh, from Paul, Paul Benfield, about the bias of the IC towards the classified environment. And that's an area I wanted to go to anyway. So I'm going to use your question, Paul, as, the, as a bridge into the segue into that. Um, I agree that from my own experience years ago, if somebody brought in, quote, open source intelligence, for which most people thought that meant a quick read of some social media, which of course isn't open source intelligence in itself, it's part of the, the huge pot that's out there, there was a tendency to say, yeah, that's all very well. I, I can't believe that. I'm going to go with the signals intelligence. I'm going to go with the image that I've got, and I'm going to work with that. So what are the barriers preventing the shift? Where do we have to start chipping away at the wall between where we are today, where we want to be? And Sean, I'll come to you first, because I know you and I have spoken about this many times. And Terry, I'll come to you after that. What are the things we ought to get right in terms of the shift in focus towards the utility of open source? Sean. I'll let Terry go and go and talk about more about the technical side and you know the actual you know practical limitations. But for me, the biggest thing is cultural, and that starts with you know leadership recognizing the legitimate use of uh, of open source intelligence. 
Um, and that's generally, I think, starting to happen now. So quite good articles out there where, where people that are either former ex-senior IC or, or still serving say, yeah, we need to use this. But of course, it doesn't stop there because you've got to get down a level and, uh, and get to the, you know, the analysts, that, that the people that do all the really work. And I always think about it, about, you know, what's in it for me? So as you know, one of my main roles um, over when I was in DIA was to increase the amount of Five Eyes um, intelligence sharing. It was hard enough to get even quite senior people to see the legitimacy of other Five Eyes partners' intelligence. It used to really frustrate me, actually. There was a, call it an institutional arrogance, if you like, but, but it was more than that, actually. But so that was one. I think we're breaking through a lot of that, actually, as people realise it. But there is still a philosophy that if it's not classified and it's not collected by exquisite sources, it's not intelligence. And of course, that's not surprising because people have been you know, indoctrinated, but also trained to an extremely high level on this exquisite stuff. And, and of course, that's their bread and butter. So yeah. back to the, okay, what's in it for me? Well, it's got to add value, obviously, and that goes with the validation, it goes with the assurance and all those other good things. But it's also got to be practically easy to do. If I'm an analyst, again, I always think about the analysts sat there working away. I've got to look at 10 different systems. I've got deadlines coming out my ears. They're all a picture competing. And the last thing I want is someone to say, oh, by the way, go and, go and have a look at that computer in the corner because it's got shed loads of information out there that you also need to, you know, filter all the way through and find out the little nugget in there if you can, off you go. So it's not surprising, and I'm not being rude about the cultural challenges, but they are really there. So it comes with education, but it also comes with a degree of, of facilitation and then tradecraft as well. I think tradecraft for open source intelligence is a very big area that, that uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll stay. We might talk about that later, but because it is different because there's so many sources of it but uh but so so for me the big one um is cultural okay cultural um and just going to touch very briefly from my perspective the tradecraft piece is one that i have seen firsthand um an individual staring at a signals intelligence feed gets a pretty much pre-formatted intelligible response to the question they're asking around signals intelligence and that is a relatively slim piece of intelligence. Open source is anything other than STEM. It's incredibly broad, deep, it's very variable, it's changing continuously. And I think that's a different tradecraft. I think that is a different skill set that's required. And actually some of the time, I wonder whether analysts just don't know where to start with this morass of information that is just churning in front of them. Where do I begin? And I think the tradecraft training that I've seen in recent times starting to emerge that helps people navigate their way into open source is something that again, needs to be taken up it needs to be seen as an opportunity to really break open the box called open source and make it useful terry let's step across then from the cultural thing that sean's described and i've added a piece there about tradecraft to the technology the the more technical um barriers we've got to overcome terry sure so this is an interesting story if we look in the last five years in the united states our foundational intelligence holdings have increased 25 fold uh, 95 to 98% of that is open source information, right? Uh, that is the significant change. To some degree, the big data revolution is already happening, right? The technical side of that is you're right, you're overwhelmed. The first thing is we have to let the, we have to let the machine take on some of the burden of watching the rest of the world because we don't have enough analysts to cover down on everything in the world. It, the, the, the human labor involved to, to watch every significant event in the world is too great. So using that data, we can say, hey, look, I'm not looking at this particular place in the world, but I'm gonna let that collection continue, right? 
And I've had enough say in that collection that I can trust, right? We can put enough into that automation to say, hey, we have the analyst thoughts and rules into that collection. So that when the analyst does pivot to that place in the world, the data is already there, right? We can get to, we can start by saving time uh, through technology and then building out a, a better understanding without a lot of labor. And the second yeah. part of that though, is then that transition from that cultural tradecraft into the machine. And that's where we're very early in the story, right? Uh, so there are great capabilities developed out there that do some of that today. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is a shift from a very analog tradecraft that we're used to and is time honored to a quantitative tradecraft, which, which we're, we're at the very beginning of that story. We begin, as we've mentioned here, but now using the technology to create ease of use. I can, I can ask, I can find the data and ask questions of the data better, faster, easier than I used to. That's followed by more advanced things, right? Once I've learned how to do that, I can move into my hypothesis making, right? My traditional intelligence process, right? I can use ACH on a computer. I don't have to formulate that in the best supercomputer ever made, right? And then I can get to very advanced technologies. The key to that though, is all that data at the beginning has to be well-organized, well-constructed, well-vetted, uh, and well-placed so that it can enable all these other missions. Yeah, and that tradecraft you're alluding to there, supported by technology is a piece that we're gonna come on to. I can see some questions coming in about that, which we're gonna um, tuck into. So in fact, let's go to one of those right now because we just talked about technology and how it's starting to unlock things. Um, a question from Madeline, how will AI and data analytics assist in shortening that time lag? You mentioned timeliness in your piece just there, Terry, between collection of OSINT and turning it into actionable intelligence. And once I've asked you that question, Terry, sure what I'm going to ask you on the cultural side is, so why would that not be a good thing? Why would analysts sort of throw up their hands in horror if they, if they saw the AI starting to do that? Terry, give us your thoughts. Yeah, sure. So, so to me, it's a tale of two, two cities, right? The first city is the data management city. The AI can collect, organize, control, assess confidence on the data. And we're doing that right now, right? We can use very advanced concepts to get to very high statistical significance uh, in our data collection using AI. We use computer vision, we use machine learning, and we use multiple points of inputs to say, hey, I, I, I'm not gonna trust a single set of data. I'm gonna use a multiplicity set of data to get the confidence I need, right? And so we use, you see the adage is, if Apple, MasterCard, and Google all say that, that, that that's a restaurant, it's highly probable that that's a restaurant, right? Yeah. Uh, we need to get to the same place in our world. The second part of that is the analytical side. And that's where the most potential is, right? To me, that is beginning, A, data has to be well-managed. It's 80% of the job. If anybody ever says it's not, the, the, take your money and go home. But the analytical side is, 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 the, is the promise, right? And what I would say is, is treat that as, a stepping stone towards moving your business processes forward. Start with asking Boolean questions of the data. Start with descriptive and inferential statistics. Don't run to AI. Move into your understanding of that data because you're building trust, you're building confidence. And very importantly, you're also slowly and very methodically bringing that trade craft that you already have into that automation process. And, and I think there's where industry can provide us the greatest benefit to open source. And we're, we're just touching on that, but we shouldn't go from zero to 60 uh, right. on this. We should do this deliberately over time. 
And there's some so, great, great, great so, examples of that. So can I redefine the AI to augmented intelligence? Is that a more useful yes, version it, of that? I do. I, 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 I don't want to speak critically about AI, but I worry that we're watering down the definition of AI. It's, being, it's expanding into any sort of automated quantitative assessment, not the true meaning, which where is the computer's learning and then making its own assessment, right? Where many, many times we conflate AI to mean a great many things. Yeah. So let me um, now walk that scenario toward you, Sean. So you're back in your role as the Joint Force Commander's J2 lead. And intelligence is pouring in and it's been sifted through the machine augmented systems and it's presented to you. How are you feeling about that? Um, if only, if only, you know, I, I have to say that I don't think we're there yet. We're nowhere near there yet, actually. And the Excel spreadsheet, sadly, is, is still king. Um, it's all about trusting the data. Of course it is. But it's all about trusting the data anyway when you're when you're an intelligence analyst and having that confidence in the data so you know a lot of people say well if it's open source you know how can you how can you assure it you know how's it validated etc cetera, etc cetera. well for me it's just like any form of intelligence if you look at you know Qmint or even SIGINT and, and I'm being blasphemous here you know it's only as good as the source it comes from now you know so for instance if you if you you know talk to somebody in, in a covert manner you're hearing what either they want you to hear, what they believe, you know, or what their perceptions are. So, and, it, and it, it's the same with any, any form of intelligence at all. So how do you know it's, it's actual truth? Well, you know that by testing and adjusting, you know, if you start giving a, getting given a load of rubbish or intercepting a load of rubbish, you know not to trust that. And it's exactly the same with open source. And this is where the, the clever stuff, the artificial intelligence, I do agree, Terry, you know, that there's, there's a lot talked about it, does come in because that can start to, you know, um, cross-refer to different sorts of intelligence. It's always all about, you know, uh, making sure you've got two or three different sources that validate each other. Um, so, so for me, in that scenario that you gave me, I'd be absolutely delighted because what I want my clever analyst to be doing is doing that. You've heard me say this a million times. So what, what if and answering the commander's question, not sifting through huge amounts of data of which 95% will be totally useless. And, but you know, time is of the essence as always with these things and you just got to get through it. So you end up giving assessments that are only, you know, partially validated anyway. So anything that can, filter down that that information to, to that is more useful saves your time and gets you to concentrate on the actual exam question that is going to take time and, and it will do but but it's also trust you know there will be mistakes but just as they are with 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 analysis anyway so so i i don't buy this you can't use osint because it's not validated it might be all a load of rubbish that's the same with with any intelligence frankly yeah the um the comment just made by uh anthony on the chat room about the tripod method, finding at least three corroborating open source data points is a method that they use in validating open source information. And I, I fully concur with that. That ability to triangulate is so, so intrinsic to tradecraft in intelligence. Why wouldn't it be useful in open source? Terry? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. We live in a world today where it's acceptable for the human being to be fallible. The human being can make a mistake, but the machine cannot, right? Yeah, right. And, and, and I fought this battle a lot, you know, 99% confidence interval, but you still have it. You still can't break through, right? Yeah. And they'll use exceptionalism and other things, right? Oh, you called that a bridge, but it's a roller coaster. Yes, but out of the two million bridges, only five are wrong. Yeah, um, right. 
So I agree with you. So the validation process to get to trust, and there's many methods for doing this. And I think that this is one area the, the intelligence community does well. It's never relied on single source to make a judgment call, right? It, it, it doesn't matter which phase of intelligence you're in. If you're a targeter, if you're an analyst, if you're a fires person, you're always, you need that, that quality. The advantage in defense intelligence is that. It's, it, is, it is. Does the tripod have to come from three open source uh, methods or can one be geoint or can one be something new? There's a proliferation of data happening across what we would traditionally call ints going on out there. And I think we should expand our horizons to look at that because the volumes of, you know, there are other independent signals we can use to get that validation yet still stay in OSINT. The only rider I've put into that, just, just to throw something in there, is that some of the best assessments I've ever heard were low confidence ones. You know, we don't know, but we've got some information. And then based on the analyst's experience, knowledge, tradecraft, I guess, but I think this is going to happen. And those are the ones you really listen to, actually. Not because they, and I, I do think sometimes in the intelligence world, we're too safe. Right, I want to be so corroborated and so validated that I'm not going to put anything out there until that happens. And, and you, you can understand that if you get it wrong, the consequences are better if it, than if you get it right late. Or are they? Don't know on that one. Um, yeah. Just going back to, um, sorry, the, um, sorry, I'm, I'm going on now. But briefly, in terms of that validator, if you're, say I wanted to do an air order of battle, I could use commercial satellite imagery today that is good enough, very good enough to identify not just aircraft, but specific types of aircraft. You can apply machine learning algorithms to that automatically that will count your numbers of aircraft instantly, as long as you've got the data and you've had the training data to, to train the algorithms in the first place. And you can just keep that rolling along day to day, every day. And that's when you know, it can alert you to say, oh, hang on, there's two less than the normally are here. That is when the analyst gets engaged. So why is that? So that's the real power I see of, of it's, just a, it's just an example I use in terms of the power of, of um, open source information that it just helps the analyst. It doesn't replace the analyst, it helps them. I like the, um, the analogy used earlier, Terry, about start gently, get those Boolean searches out there, start to trust the data that's coming to you and then start to increase the analytical power you apply to it. Um, I also like the idea, Sean, that you've introduced there where you are enabling the analyst to get to the so what question so much more quickly with a much more complete and one hopes more accurate data set for them to start doing their so what analysis on. If you use the four factors of information quality of timeliness, relevance, accuracy and completeness, then what I think I'm hearing is with the right technology applied to the open source environment, you get to a more complete, relevant, accurate and therefore usable intelligence that gives you the context and things we talked about. Um, I am conscious of time because I know that we will uh, run away with ourselves if we're not careful. I've got three more questions I want to bring in, which are relevant to what we're just going, what we were just talking about there. Francis has asked about defense intelligence as an all-source organization and discipline. Has it become less relevant in this COVID-related environment? So all-source organization with discipline, has, has it become less relevant in the COVID-related environment? Is it likely to be devalued in importance to senior policymakers and operators who can, who can access OSINT easily and in real time? Okay, being a Brit, I ought to address that one. Hi, Francis, it's great to see you. I don't think it's become less relevant. I think it's become less listened to, perhaps. Um, why is that? Well, because, you know, everyone's an instant expert. We've all done it. We just Google the answer to everything. 
and and the problem with that is that of course you know 50 percent plus probably significantly more of that is not right but this is where it comes to, down to the augmenting piece so you know if if di and other intelligence organizations should be focusing on that which is unique that cannot be uh taken from 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 open source but but to an extent validating that open source as well and adding the extra value added to it so you know if you sort of see something going on in the world covid is a great a great example i mean ebola, ebola that was a really good one we 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 were really badly equipped to actually deal with that because it was a, an enemy we couldn't see, hear, feel, or, or, or fight. And it was all in the open source domain, but we didn't have the information we needed to actually come up with an assessment. Now, you know, it took us a while, but we eventually got there um, in terms of, okay, the so what from that. But if you take that and add that to, to, um, to this sort of exquisite stuff in the collection, you very quickly then get really into the detail that might be the bit that's required for the policy makers and the decision makers in terms of you know where to use their resources most effectively so i i i can understand the frustration that you know that, that everybody's an instant expert now but it's the job of the intelligence community to make sure that we really are or you not me anymore really are the experts and add that that layer of value added that open source simply can't do and just before I go to Terry Francis, I noticed that I've moved one of your questions to the answered section. That was my bad. I'll bring you back into the to be answered section in a second. Ter Terry, your, your views on this um, sidelining. Sure, absolutely. And we've debated this for a long time pre-COVID is that there is enough data and there's enough apparatus in the world that you can conduct some intelligence outside of the all source environment. Right. And, and that we acknowledge that. What does the all source environment bring? First is accountability. Um, this is something that's very important to understand. If, an, if a fly-by-night open source intelligence capability, and some of them are fantastic, right? I follow them as well as you do, make a call and they're wrong and they have been wrong at times. There's no accountability, right? In our context, we have accountability. We are part of the government system, right? We have to make amends and we have to reinvent. And this has happened to us. Intelligence failures occur and we reinvent processes and respond and do a better job as a result, right? The... This is something you can't throw money at, right? This is why it's inherent, inherently governmental. That said, there are functions and they're going to be functions that can be completely done in the OSINT side. And I honestly believe in it, it that, that we should use OSINT as a basis for all of our intelligence uh, research. So I'm with you on that. Uh, I don't think it diminishes it though. I do think that there are still certain things that we need to hold under the national security tent, no matter what, what the, the issue is, that gives, gives us an advantage. And it's important that we, we always are assessing what those reasons are. And if they don't need to be held under a national security uh, umbrella, then that's okay. Then we can move that out into open source. Very good. I've got two great questions here. And I wanna to go to the one I inadvertently put into the wrong section on the uh, Q&A box. Uh, we'll come back to that one, Francis. So William's asked, uh, to you, Terry, what data architectures help with contextualizing the breaking news that you described with the foundational information found in something like Jane's? What are yeah. the architectures that are going to help that? We're moving very quickly through this. Uh, Ten years ago, plus when we started, we were trying to collectivize the data, get into a singular understanding so you wouldn't be lost in perpetual search and get to that entity level, even though it was some sort of you know, conflation of inputs to an object and get that out to as fast as possible. We serviced ease of use by creating architectures that were 
focused on delivery and high speed. They were not focused on analysis, right? They were to get the information. Now we're seeing, we're moving into graph technologies. We're moving into other understandings of data that A, do a lot of the heavy lifting for us, right? They, they're gonna make those connections to help us do those, those hidden anomalous connections that we don't see ourselves and B, make it easier for us to ask questions of the data. So I would say we're advancing into graph and other higher order data architectures right now. Um, and, and it's its own subject area. And that's a great thing for us, right? As long as, you know, it, 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 and I love all the progress being made there. Let me ask um, a question to you, Sean. Uh, do you have confidence in the ability of the UK Defence Intelligence, DI, to move properly into big data AI explosion space? Do you see exploitation space? Do you see that as something the UK are going to do successfully anytime soon? I think my answer would almost, um, without it being impertinent, um, be equally applicable to the US, although the US can scale so much better. I think there is still a procedural process bureaucracy that prevents that happening to its optimum now. I mean, I, you know, I've been I've been working around the the sort of open source AI world now for three 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 and a half years, and I, I'll offer my um, expertise for for what it is to anybody. Nobody has uh, approached me from from my old colleagues. Now that might be just because it's me, but you know, the engagement is just not there. If you're lucky, you get five minutes at the you know the the sort of innovation center, have a chat, and they think you're trying to sell them something, so they don't want to know. Now that is changing. There's no question. Certainly, the narrative, and, and it's the same in the states. You know, you've got got you know brilliant advocates like Mike Grow in uh, in in, uh, in the US that really get it and want to work with industry, but the mechanisms just aren't there in, yet to 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 facilitate that. And it's it's so usual for defence and government to go, right? We need to reinvent the wheel and do it ourselves. And, and getting to the oh, hang on, here's one that was created earlier. You know, I'll, we'll just we'll just partner with that. It, we're just not there yet. That, that's not just in intelligence, but it is a really big area which has always been compartmented anyway. Compartmented anyway, um, that is starting to happen, and it will be a slow evolution. But but it does get frustrated um, when there's just not the there's the appetite there, there's the will, there's just not necessarily the mechanism yet. I think is the way I would uh, I would describe it. You know, uh, and of course, you know, many people are are like me, middle aged and, and slightly past it. So we need the bright young things to be given their head to say, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. This is what you're doing. This is how you do it. Um, and, and I think we're trying to inculcate that as well. There's a wider debate on whether we are and can recruit the right sort of people to do that. And this is where I do think partnering with industry is, is going to um, equally be important. So a question, I'm going to squeeze in a couple more questions. And as I do so on the second one, uh, gents, I'm going to ask you to start to Bring together for me your vision of what good looks like when OSINT is properly deployed and integrated. So the first question before we get to that, though, is from William. Publicly available information, intelligence when it's um, assessed, and related capability of managed attribution capabilities helped certain organizations to remain productive during work from home periods. I think that's a very interesting um, statement and an, an implied question for me. Watching the James analysts overnight switch from being teams in offices, contributors sending in their stuff to suddenly doing that from home in remote places was a very interesting and very fast transition. And one that I think is actually quite an interesting topic in itself. But to the point, publicly available information related capability of managed attribution capabilities has helped certain organizations to remain productive during work from home periods. Your thoughts on that, Terry? Because that's going to be a factor that we're going to have to deal with for some time yet. 
It is, and, it, it, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot for a project to have lately. So some of the problem has been OPSEC, right? It has been being secure at home. So the managed attribution systems are great because it gives you a connection to the world with some anonymity. However, you're still compiling information and there's always a risk when you're, you know, when you're outside uh, the closed environment. So the opportunity there is we can begin to understand the world better using OSINT, right? So the nice thing is, is hey, if I'm studying a particular phenomenon out in the world for intelligence sake, if the entirety of what I'm looking at is open source, isn't it a surprise to anyone that we're studying these issues? Of course not, right? Uh, we have to get over that. There is an old paradigmatic way of thinking that is, if I'm looking at it, it's therefore all 100% classified, right? The fact that I'm looking at it makes it classified. When we know we're looking at these things. Right, right. So I think it's leveraging those sources as your basis, right, uh, of this. And, that, and, and that's, that's what we learn through this, you know, sort of going home, manage attribution environment is we can do a lot of this research online. I still have security concerns. Don't get me wrong. There's still things that give me butterflies in my stomach because as a guy who's collected a lot of this information, I, I sort of know how it works in reverse. That yeah. said, it is, it is a new paradigm. And let's just use OSIN as the basis of our understanding for that research. Very good. All right, we're into the last minute or two. So I'm going to use the last minute or two, leveraging off uh, Simon's question about uh, have we completed the IPE of where OSINT can and can't, should or shouldn't be used? Where can we safely use it successfully? Um, and indeed, on that route, Terry, I might ask you just to touch on the technology piece again about you know where we feel more comfortable or less comfortable. I think we've talked about it, but by all means, uh, re-emphasize it. Using that as the platform, my question to you in turn, I'll start with you, Terry, is what does good look like when we've got OSINT to where it should be, in your own words? Yeah, I think good looks like to us is that when we are seeing dynamically a level of comprehension of what's going on, right, that is ethical and responsible and legal, but is giving us a dynamic view of what we're studying, right? And I think we are not even close to what's there. And we have to continually reassess what is responsible look. We clearly want to make sure that we're doing this in, in an appropriate way. But the level of comprehension that we need to get to, I think we're 20% of the way there at this point in time, right? It will, we will be disrupted, right? By investments in technology that are yet to fully be realized, the small sat world alone, if you look at the billions of investment in that market, right? What is going to happen when that market gives us complete persistence of, of, of staring at things in the world? And so to me, it is, you, know, you can't make me escape my all source mindset. To me, it is the combination of OSINT replicating and then advancing what we once considered traditional ints into this fuse understanding. Uh, and I think we're just at the beginning of that story. Yeah, thanks, Terry. Sean? Yeah, the key for me, for uh, as Terry alluded to, I think actually, is, is the ability to integrate the filtered, the right open source into the rest of the intelligence community, however difficult that is. And, and this is one of the real practical constraints. You know, even if you have to lift it, air gap it and put it in there, you've got to treat all the information in, 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 you know, in the round. You can't just ignore bits because then you get both conscious and unconscious bias. And that leads back into what you're talking about in terms of working from home. That's about training and education. You know, you can put security protocols on your computer, but you've got to actually 
behave and, and use them in the right way. But you've also got to make sure that you are looking at the right things in the right way and not unintentionally, as everybody does, including the ISA, going to that source because either because it's easy, because it's, it's accessible. But you've got to, for the success for the, for the IC is to bring it all into one place and to be able to manipulate it together. And that's another discussion about standards, data standards and all the rest that we right. don't have time for today. Right. Well, because we have overrun, I'm obliged to say, sadly, that we'll draw this conversation to a close. But as we said before we started, gents, I knew this would get this would go for as long as it wanted to. It could, could have been hours. So let me first of all thank the people who have joined us for this conversation and ask us some really good questions. Um, Terry, thank you very, very much for bringing your expertise and your outstanding insights to this. And Sean, similarly, uh, as ever, forthright, straight to the point. And accurate. Thank you both. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, Janes.com/podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from Jays, covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's Threat Intelligence Solutions. Find out more at Jane's.com slash threat.